Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil, and this is... Emily Kate Stevens. Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID. And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. How was your week, mother? So my week started very well. I went out dancing for the first time in two and a half years. I went to a party. It was amazing. And I saw loads of friends and I was on sparkling form. But it turns out I'm not quite a normal person. So I tried to carry on living life like a normal person the day after. And then slowly I kind of faded into all the long COVID things. So by about two days after the party, I got that really, really dark mood that I always say is the prelude to my physical symptoms. And then I got a migraine and then I've just had all of the various things that go along with it. I also don't know if it's just from going out dancing because I saw a lot of people. It might be that I caught a virus. So who knows if I push my body too hard, but I'd I'd still go out dancing again. I'm not going to stop living my life because of long COVID. So it's just working out the balance. You would never have been able to even contemplate going out dancing six months, eight months ago. Even six months ago, I would not have been able to contemplate, not even the dancing bit, I wouldn't have been able to contemplate going to that kind of party that had a lot of people that I know, a lot of people to talk to, that kind of cognitive overload of being with a lot of people. I couldn't have done it six months ago. I can see in you, definite, because we do this, how was your week, and we, we can see each other. I can see huge improvements in how you've been over the last six months yeah like, it's incremental you do have crashes and I think that's just kind the way of, we have to live now yeah it's the way we have to live but your baseline is slowly creeping up yeah definitely which I think is amazing this week it feels like everything has gone into hypersensitivity so I don't know if that means that my whole body has inflammation through it possibly I've had horrendous stomach but also anything that I've eaten has flared my eczema I have really bad light sensitivity noise sensitivity really really irritable and either I have a really low pain threshold or my body is really overly sensitive because you know this hamstring that I did six weeks ago now I went to see my osteo and she literally just touched it and I screamed in pain and I normally have a pretty high pain threshold anything touching me kind of creeps me out it's everything is super sensitive uh, do, do you think that's inflammation what do you think do you ever have that I do it's like sensitive to everything but I put that in the box of allergies that that goes into that box if I get a flare of my allergies it also just means I'm more sensitive to everything but I think that must just mean it's all inflammation it's really hard now because the more we talk to people the more these lines are blurring for me. What's autoimmunity? What's inflammation? What's MCAS? Well, I think the thing is that we can't separate them all out the way our medical systems do. We have to look holistically at the whole thing. And actually, we'll find that it's just all so entwined. None of us have got one or the other, I don't think. Yeah. And which really is almost kind of depressing for me because I think that the only way that we really truly will get better is if we rest our bodies enough and don't injure them in the kind of give them more viruses to deal with or more anything to deal with. 
that that's how they're going to heal, but the healing has to come from within. Yeah. But interestingly, on the rest thing, you'll be shocked. I didn't do yoga for five days and you know that I have to do it every day. And I did yoga this morning and there was this point at which I felt this kind of click in my body. The tinnitus stopped and it was like my nervous system managed to still itself, managed to calm. So I know that you sometimes think I'm crazy for doing yoga, but it, it has this effect on me mentally. But having done the yoga, my body is now more shaky than I was before I did it. So I agree with you, we have to rest to a degree, but it's finding the way that we can also calm our minds or nervous systems or however you look at things. The analogy I would use is it's a seesaw, right? So you're on one end of the seesaw and up you go, you feel great. Yeah. (laughs) But being up there makes you feel shit. So you go back down again. And then you work your way back up and you go down again and then you work your way up and you go down again. I love your analogy. That is literally what our lives are like. Tell me about your week. How was your week? The continuation of my woeful state of health at the moment is my heart's still really bad. So my heart got really bad after all those viruses and the antibiotics, as I've mentioned for the last few weeks. And then I went back on the evabradine, but the evabradine only helped to a certain degree and it lowered the tachycardia but I had such bad chest pain and my heart was hurting all the time my chest was hurting in significant ways the ways that I haven't had before really really frightening because you know right now we're in the middle of a frenzy of everyone dropping dead and then I sort of thought okay well I'm going to come off the evabradine because my heart rate's getting a bit lower but I've still got all this chest pain I'll try medicinals I did medicinals for two days felt absolutely crap my chest pain was off the scale because of the com- coming off the evabradine yeah, yeah i can't take the evabradine and medicinals together yeah. but you know uh, the more desperately ill we feel the more desperate we get to try anything yeah if something's not working yeah. you try to shift something i did that for two days and felt much much worse and now i've developed a new symptom which i'd never had before which is that when my heart gets tachycardic when it starts to beat really fast it actually hurts I'd get the fast heartbeat, but I wouldn't get an increase in pain. But now, like, I could feel my heart actually hurting. Yeah. And I could heal my heart in my ears. Again, something that I never had before. Oh, welcome to the joy of pulsatile tinnitus. Yeah, but it only happens when I get tacky. So far, touch wood, not on that neurological scale. But it's really frightening. So what I've done now is I'm back on the evabradine and back on the culture scene. Yeah. And I've got much reduced pain i can honestly say it has to be the addition of the culture scene i mean i still get some pain but it's not constant or as bad and it's made your life somewhat more manageable or it's made you more operational yeah i'm not just too frightened to get off the sofa now i'm hoping that if i just keep doing that for a couple of weeks that everything will settle down and i can start to up my baseline yeah but who knows So for this week's episode, we talked to Harry Leeming. He's the CEO and founder of Visible, a new activity tracking platform. Especially designed for people suffering with long COVID and ME-CFS. They've just launched an app currently in the beta phase. 
The app is free and launched this week, and it's meant to help you be aware and log your symptoms in order to help you pace. Yeah, and gives you data feedback so you can enter information when you've done certain things. When you've added new drugs, exercise, and it gives you the ability to track your symptoms. So it's designed to give you a picture of your illness which should in turn help you manage it. The app also has the ability for you to daily check your HRV by placing your finger onto the camera lens on your phone, which I thought was quite an exciting feature. And they have a wearable integration in development that will launch in the new year. You're looking well though, Harry. Yeah, isn't that hilarious? It's like, I definitely don't do well. <laughs> um, so how are you feeling right now when we're talking to you? I'm doing actually quite good the last couple of weeks, which has been really nice. I feel like I had the biggest dip at the one year mark, which is slightly scary to get to your worst point 12 months in. Your mental model for this illness is like, oh, I must be linear, right? I must get slowly better over time. So how am I having the worst bit? 12 months in but I, I feel like I'm out of that now what month are you on now um, I'm at the two-year mark as of okay. last month I tell you what's scary Harry I'm I'm at the worst dip and I'm at the two-year mark yeah. I had five months of almost normal health at least you know your body can get back there right it is possible it can get back to the best but it can also get back to the worst yeah. I think that's I have to say it's worse than it's ever been worse than it was at its worst have you got new symptoms this time? They're just worse. My heart's so much worse. Really bad. I'm getting all kinds of alerts on my on my wearable. Not your wearable yet, Harry. I will wear your wearable. But uh, on my wearable, I'm getting all kinds of alerts that I never had ever had before. Have you got an Apple Watch? Yes. So... Can you tell us about your your story, Harry, your long COVID condition and what's brought you to this point here with Visible? Yeah, so I, I've had long COVID now for two years. I was at the beginning of the second wave, had a mild infection, which I think is quite common. And then I had a couple of days where I was back at work thinking everything was fine. And then things just went very downhill from there and particularly had an issue with POTS brain fog, chest pain, um, dizziness. Like I was really struggling to stand for those first couple of months. Um, and then, yeah, slowly thought I was getting better. Yeah, it's been up and down since then and still miles off what it used to be. Just in terms of how it has impacted you, you've, I think like Noreen and I, you've gone from being a active person. How would you describe your life before? Yeah, I mean, I was very active before I had COVID. I had no previous medical conditions, rarely went to the doctor. I wouldn't even take an ibuprofen for headaches. I, I was in good health and I was climbing mountains. I was cycling across countries. Those were my holidays to do those kind of things. So having long COVID now is quite a shock. I'm now mostly housebound. Two years in, you're mostly housebound. Yeah, I've got a bit of capacity to do the odd thing. But I definitely am sort of tethered to the house. I can't get too far. But you're able to make friends because you've become part of our merry band. Just for our listeners, we met about a year ago now and have bonded over, <laughs> over our ill health. And the fact that we want to try and help people 
it's, it's nice, right? We've found each other through our illness, and I doubt we would have ever crossed paths if we hadn't become seriously ill. Need some positives to come out of uh, long COVID. It's been fun. And another positive to come out of you having this illness, Harry, is the impetus that has given you to develop your company Visible. Where should we start? Well, I mean, for, I guess for a bit of context on Visible, we're building an activity tracking platform to help people with long COVID and ME to pace and to track their condition and essentially gather longitudinal data on where they're getting better, where they're getting worse and what's making them better and what's making them worse. And that's using what data points, metrics, markers? Uh, so we're tracking heart rate variability, heart rate, um, and we're also tracking posture as well. So that's a really important one. Um, so we know that underlying these conditions is some level of dysautonomia. I think 70% or so of people with long COVID would fail the Nasaline test. The Nasaline test is like the most basic version of the tilt table test. But you can pick up a similar thing, this like rise in heart rate, this change in blood pressure. And the ability with wearables, we're able to track those changes in real time throughout the day. So we can build a picture up rather than requiring you to go and do a tilt table every couple of months. Uh, we can do this test automatically throughout the day, every time you're shifting from lying down to standing up. And so we can measure your body's response to that. And obviously in healthy people, that would be a, a regular response. It would balance your heart rate, your blood pressure, but with people with these conditions, you're going to see an irregular response. And that's something that we can pick up. Okay. So absolute basics of it. You are talking about something that you wear around your wrist so the tracker that we use is actually on the upper arm um so we're partnered with polar and we do it in the upper arm for a couple of reasons you actually get more accurate heart rate up there you don't get the wrist movement the, the ligament movement that causes a bunch of noise in general there's a lot less limb movement up there um, but the yeah. other benefit is your position of your upper arm much more closely correlates with your postural position um, and so we have a much clearer understanding of what position that you're in that you wouldn't be able to get from a wrist-based tracker. Um, so combining the more accurate heart rate and heart rate variability data along with your postural data allows us to essentially build digital biomarkers specifically for these conditions um, to determine uh, your level of dysautonomia. Rather than requiring a blood test, we can actually do this with technology. So just to talk about the heart rate variability, because we did talk to Dr. David Strain uh, a few weeks ago, and he was saying that the Apple Watch at the moment measures two different points of heart rate variability. Does your one add any more data to that? Because he was saying there are so many ways that you can do heart rate variability. Yeah. It requires extrapolating more and more layers, doesn't it? Yeah. You can pull out different frequencies from the beat-to-beat intervals um, that come through from the sensor. Um, and each of those frequencies are associated with different things. So, um, for example, your breath would be at a certain frequency. And so you can pull that out. And that's a really key one that we're really interested in. But there's a bunch of other metrics that sort of sit within these B2B intervals that we get coming through that are very interesting for us to look at and to interpret and to use those as um, like not, not only digital biomarkers, but also uh, to understand how likely you are to have an increase in symptoms or post-exertional malaise. And those data points are not something that is available on the fitness trackers that are designed generally for exercise and, and pushing yourself. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. So most of them do uh, basic heart rate. Some of them will offer a, 
a sort of morning score of your heart rate variability, but few of them are actually tracking these beat to beat intervals throughout the whole day, 24 seven. And that's something that we do. Okay. In addition to the breath, what are the things that you are able to measure? And is your tracker that you've developed sensitive enough at the moment to pull that data? Um, So right now what we're doing is like super basic heart rate monitor pacing. So we're using a lot of the stuff out of the Workwell Foundation's research um, into trying to keep your heart rate low to reduce your risk of post-exertional malaise. Um, But what that's allowing us to do over the next couple of months is to collect all this data that we need to then analyze it, to then see if there are better predictors of PEM within that data set. Okay. So to see what which of those points are relevant, yeah. essentially. Yeah. That's a great way to build health when you're feeling healthy. But for me at the moment, because I'm in such a bad crash, my heart rate will go crazy even just sitting down or lying down. So that's not something that the tracker is going to help me with because obviously I probably need some medicine or something. Although what will be interesting from what Harry said is it will be able to pull that data that says your heart rate's gone crazy when you've been lying down or stationary, which is completely different from your heart rate going crazy because you've just run to the bus stop, isn't it? Exactly. So yeah, so there's like this internal load that you have of what your body's doing. And then this external load that is like the movement that you're doing. So we can, we can pick up the external load through your accelerometer data, what position you're in. Um, and we can pick up the internal load through your heart rate. And then we're able to compare those two and look at the differences that occur in uh, people with these conditions versus those that are healthy. Okay. Makes sense to me. I think the way that we're looking at what we're building is it's offering three things. One is this real-time guidance for your activity. So it can tell you before you're doing too much. The other is to be able to tell you over a long period of time, are you getting better or are you getting worse? And then thirdly is for us to be able to tell you, is this thing I've tried, whether that's medication or lifestyle changes, supplements, is that making you better or is that making you worse? So alongside your tracker, you have the app and the ability to record that that information. So you enter when you've started taking natokinase or whatever supplement or medicine you've started taking. And then that actually attaches that information directly to the data that you're monitoring. Yeah, exactly. So what Visible is, is an app alongside a wearable, and we stream the data from the wearable in real time to your app. And we're able to then analyze that data. Um, But also within the app, there is a bunch of things that you can do. So that's where you'll get your notification to pace. Uh, That's where you'll be able to look at graphs in your condition to see if you're getting better or worse. That's where you're able to input things like medication, supplements, lifestyle changes. The other things that you're able to do in the app is also to opt in to share that data directly with researchers. Which I think is brilliant, by the way. It's a brilliant feature. So one of the first studies that we're doing is the impact of the menstrual cycle on symptoms for ME and long COVID. So after my own heart. I said to you the other day, didn't I, Harry? Because I know so many people who don't necessarily have long COVID women between 35 and 45, all of whom have had some kind of uh, menstrual impact from, well, I believe it's from COVID because why else are 35-year-old women suddenly going into the perimenopause? And I do think that's an area that really does need a lot of research. 
Yeah, I totally agree. And it's something that I feel like the community all knows that's happening. And it's not in you know published papers, it's not being researched. And so this is an awesome opportunity for us to get some research out there on it to get it taken more seriously. Who are you working with? Or who have you partnered with for that? Because I think one of the things that you've done brilliantly is you've sought some really heavy hitters in terms of who you're taking advice from and who to work with on on your app. So who are you working with for that study? So for that study specifically, that's with Vicky Mail at Imperial College London. But our experts on our medical advisory board include David Petrino from Mount Sinai. We've got Darren Brown from Long COVID Physio, uh, Todd Davenport from the Workwell Foundation, Suzanne Vernon from the Bateman Horn Centre, um, David Strain, who you spoke to, and uh, Risa Pretorius from um, Stellenbosch in South Africa. Um, so we've got a pretty awesome group. Because you've got sort of quite a few different strands going there for, in terms of the research that those different people are doing. Have you tried to spread the net like that? Was that purposeful? Or is it just that you had interesting conversations with various people? It's a bit of both. I mean, uh, half of the group is in the US and half the group is in the UK. And then we have Todd and Darren, who are covering off a lot of the physiotherapy side of things. Both Dave Petrino and David Strain are able to help a lot with our understanding of heart rate variability. Suzanne Vernon has been studying ME at the Bateman Horn Center in the US for, for decades, and she's been a really big advocate of wearables in these conditions. So she's it's been really awesome to use some of her knowledge to help advance visible. And, and one of the things that's come out of that conversation with her, for example, is we're building this metric called uptime, which is rather than relying on steps to determine your exertion, we can also look at how much time you spend upright. And they've shown that to correlate much more closely with illness severity. That's really interesting. Also, sometimes people with long COVID or ME should just celebrate the fact that they've managed to stay upright for a short while. Because the parameters of what life is or what makes you okay are so changed. Yeah, I just think it's just another area where we can be much more illness specific with everything that we're doing and measuring rather than wellness specific exactly i mean all the devices out there are pushing exercise workouts that's what they're designed for that's what they're optimized for that's what all their algorithms are used on on um healthy people and that's just not what we really need which is uh, we need help rest we need help pacing and we need digital biomarkers to measure these conditions and that is one thing to highlight at this point from you just saying that you're working with Suzanne Vernon is that this is not just for long COVID, you are also developing this for MECFS. And imagine that you've actually had to rely quite heavily on what we know from MECFS, as as everyone that we've spoken to seems to be gathering a lot of their background information from MECFS. But yeah, just to highlight that it's across both illnesses that this is specifically designed. Yeah, exactly. In terms of the pacing model, part of the concept around pacing is not just physical exertion. There's also this element of mental. Like if you get super stressed or if you're worked up about something, it does affect your illness level. How how would you, have you dealt with that in the app? So I think there's some like really interesting stuff that we're seeing. I mean, we, we certainly are aware of that and we are capturing that with manual inputs into the app at the moment. Um, but what we hope we can do in the future is also to try and pick up some of that stuff through other data streams, whether that's where we spoke about before, you see this rise in your heart rate when you're sitting down, for example, like, could that also be associated with cognitive load? Or can we use 
things like screen time or audio in order to pick up more stresses in your environment and then add that into our algorithm. So I think there's a lot of scope here, um, but certainly would say Visible is a work in progress at this point. Like we're really starting with the basics and what uh, Todd Davenport has done a lot of work on with his two-day CPET tests around understanding these conditions, trying to find a, a threshold, an anaerobic threshold, and then trying to optimize your time to spend as much of that below uh, that heart rate. Okay. That's fantastic. What stage is everything at at the moment in terms of can I go out and buy a tracker? Right now, what we have is a full team working on this full time to, to build the app, to integrate with a third party device that can pick up the data that we need. And then it will be an evolution over time to get it to a place where we have digital biomarkers, where we can help people to pace. Um, so in its current form, we have a very basic version of Visible that we're using with 100 people. They were the first 100 people on our wait list. We've, we call this group the founding 100, and they're people with both ME and long COVID. Um, and we've been working with them with a prototype that um, is helping them to pace and helping them to, to track their illness over long periods of time. I think it's fairly phenomenal. Are there other people in the market trying to do something similar that enables people to somehow take control of their own illness rather than be reliant on these doctors that are not necessarily all very helpful? Um, no, not that we've come across. I mean, I think there's some really interesting projects right now. I know Scripps University is doing a research project using wearables. There's been one or two long COVID studies that have looked at some of the sleep metrics that are coming out of wearables. But, you know, as, as with all things on COVID, things aren't moving fast enough. And I think there's a real need right now to build something that is like specifically designed for these conditions and that does all the things that we want it to do. What are you hoping that it's going to do for people? I think what I'm most excited about is building these digital biomarkers, because if we can measure these conditions, then I think that opens up the next level of research. So the ability for us to take part in clinical trials in the future for people to be able to see what's helping their own condition. I think one of the biggest things that we're struggling with long COVID and ME is just not being able to measure it. And I think this is one of the best applications for wearable technology as a long-term dynamic chronic illness like these. So this kind of technology or this kind of approach has not previously been looked at for ME. Are you at the fore of that, as well as long COVID, which I know you say that things are not moving fast enough to, to achieve what you've done, to achieve what certain people have done by this stage of an illness is fairly incredible. But for the people that have had ME for the last 30 years, you're saying that no one has previously, or we haven't had the technology previously? We haven't had the technology. Yeah. I would say technology, right time, right place, Harry. <laughs> well, I think there's, there's some frustration because we can see that our bodies are not functioning correctly through our wearables, you know, through your Fitbits, through your garments. You can tell that there are signals there. So for me, when all my blood tests came back normal, it was like, well, I can see that there is that there is something wrong with my body from from when I shift positions um, you know, when I when I try and exercise. Um, and it's very frustrating that all of the development work into wearables has been around fitness. I think applying some of that, a lot of the software to these conditions is what's badly needed. You can understand that the market has been in fitness because that's where the money is. But, you know, there's millions of 
people suffering from long COVID. So <laughs> lots of people who would be interested in, in using this tech now. So that yeah. kind of makes it more interesting for people like Polar to get on board with you. Exactly. I think everyone's always thought the people who are most motivated are those who are super fit, the athletes. And actually, they've completely missed another group who are super motivated to get better. And those are those that are that have got a chronic illness. Yeah. Although that is not how they're viewed a lot of the time, is it? Especially given how people have been treated with ME over the years. They've not been viewed as people motivated. They've been viewed as exactly the opposite, which is why I think it's always quite remarkable when there are people like you and a lot of your team have long COVID or ME. Yeah, yep. Half of the team have it. Who then go out on a limb and try to develop this kind of technology or product to help people. <laughs> it's a challenge when you're feeling like crap. <laughs> yeah, it's difficult. But I think the benefits are that we understand what we need to build and we understand these illnesses very well. Our lead data scientist previously had severe ME, is now mild. He, he works three days a week and he has an intimate knowledge of these conditions and all the tools available to him to build these algorithms and to really like, take this to the next level. Has he managed to get better by developing his own algorithms? <laughs> I, I, <laughs> In he, seriousness, is it gathering all of his own data? Yes, that has- yes. Exactly. So we are all using this every day, the prototype of Visible right now. So we're continuing to refine it. And the more people that use it and the longer that we use it, the more data that we collect, the more we're able to understand what features we want to be looking at that are important, that are giving us the important signals that we need to, to measure these conditions, to manage them. That's actually the key word in, in this discussion is we're not looking at a cure, we're looking at managing. Mm. Yeah. That's really what this application, what this device is really going to help people suffering with ME or long COVID is that you're not offering a cure, you're offering a way to manage your condition. If you look at other chronic illnesses, for example, diabetes, they have devices, apps, the best technology in the world to help them manage their condition. And really the same should be true for ME and long COVID. And in diabetes, you're measuring or you're controlling for your glucose levels. And these conditions, you're really trying to control for your exertion levels. And we can track that through accelerometer data, heart rate, variability data. But I would say that while we talk a lot about managing, and that is the immediate benefit of using Visible, I think the measurement part of it is really important too. Because if we can measure these conditions, then we can figure out what's helping. And you're feeding data into scientific research is presumably your way of working towards a cure, furthering this. Yeah, really important. I mean, everything that's motivating the team is to increase our understanding of these conditions. So the more data we get, the better we understand them. And we have the ability within the app to share that data directly with researchers so we can get more published research out there and we can just move the science forwards. So what's your favourite theory? The That's exactly what I was about to ask. <laughs> I think, you know, one of the current ones, it's autoimmunity, it's gut dysbiosis, it's microclotting, it's immune dysregulation. The thing that I always come back to is that viral persistence or viral debris would then explain all those other theories, which the other theories can't do uh, in the other direction. So that's where I land, I think. And based on my knowledge as a patient of what I feel is happening in my body, that something that explains just how random it is and these, you know, why suddenly uh, 
you know, 12 months in, you're feeling worse than you did at the six month mark. It does feel like it, it wouldn't surprise me if that is what it ends up being. Why would viral persistence make you worse again at the 12 month mark? What would cause the viral persistence to exacerbate your symptoms? There's so many biological processes going on in the body that it would make sense that if the virus is replicating, that then it would cause more extreme symptoms versus managing to reduce the, or the viral persistence in your body and then you'd have lower symptoms. So it has the ability to cause those shifts that the other theories wouldn't necessarily have. What did Paxlovid do for you? So I did 10 days of Paxlovid. It tasted disgusting. I don't know if you've heard people talk about it. It tastes like metal. It's metallic taste in your mouth. And it didn't do anything for me. So I'm just curious as to the effect of antivirals, but I do also understand that antivirals do not clear the virus. They just try and get your immune system to shift them. Yeah, I suspect what will be needed is an immune booster at the same time as trying to stop viral replication. And it's that combo that will help you clear it. Or it could be like HIV, where it's not clearable because it's, it's deep in the cells. Well, they've managed to clear EBV from some people, right? Yeah, but not HIV. Yeah, true. Which this could be similar to. Yeah. One of the other problems I have with any of these discussions is that I get worse when I get another infection, another viral infection, and it's not COVID. Yeah. So that leads us to the autoimmunity thing, right? And actually, Noreen, for you, it's not necessarily just viral. It also can be bacterial, can't it? So it's anything that causes an assault on your immune body. Yeah. I'm definitely sliding towards the autoimmune camp. Yeah, but what causes autoimmunity, right? Like there's got to be something that's in there that is causing autoimmunity. I just feel like we've just underestimated in general the impact that ongoing pathogens can have on the human body. So like EBV and the link to multiple sclerosis. And I think a couple of weeks ago, there was a bacteria associated with rheumatoid arthritis, HPV and cervical cancer. There are these continuous links that seem to be popping up more and more frequently in the last few years. And it wouldn't surprise me if long COVID is a similar thing that's happening. These discussions always end up being more questions than answers, right? But I think that's the thing, isn't it? Like we, we, I'd just like to point out that Noreen is not a doctor, contrary to what someone thought this week. She's not actually a doctor. We're not medical and that's the thing with these discussions and with all of the people that we're trying to speak to is it we are just trying to put things out there to further our research, further our understanding. It is tough with these conditions, right? Because we can all have an opinion because we just know so little about them. Except for what we do know about them is our personal experience. And I do think that counts for something in terms of the people that are trying to develop research. Yeah, I think it's interesting to sort of look at the research and be like, okay, what can I see out there? And then does that correlate with what I feel is happening inside my body? And a lot of the time it doesn't. <laughs> but a lot of the time you kind of feel up, but they were looking at something completely different to my version of long COVID. My example is I had four or five months of really good health and I really didn't take anything. I'm one of those people that didn't try anything. I didn't do the hormones. I didn't do the nutraceuticals I didn't do really anything and I stopped taking all my meds and suddenly I was well and then I had another virus and now I'm worse than ever yeah so now I'm willing to try everything but that's the mindset right 
your motivation sort of correlates with how severe your illness is, which is interesting. I was super sick in that first year and I was really motivated to try everything. And as uh, my conditions got milder, I, it's, it's more bearable. And the risks that I want to take are less than, than they were a year ago. Yeah, because you have done some things that could be considered relatively of higher risk. But they make sense at the time, right? It was a rational decision, even at the time, that being that sick. It, it always frustrates me when you see in the media people talking about people taking you know, experimental medication. But what they're not talking about is that's a logical decision by that patient that that it is worth taking that risk because they are that sick. Yeah, when you weigh up your quality yeah. of life versus the risks. Yeah. Entirely rational. Which is interesting when it comes to talking to doctors to try and get um, certain drugs prescribed to you. It's a difficult relationship because you have a different risk profile than they do. Their risk profile is, is their jobs, it's their career. Your risk profile is, is your health, it's your life. And so that can cause a lot of friction. Emily and I have talked a lot about trying things and we never do <laughs> all these new treatments. And I think you've probably done every single thing that's out there. Well, I think particularly in the in the first year, it wasn't, it did kind of feel like there might just be this one thing that our bodies needed and it would fix everything. The magic bullet. We were searching for the magic bullet. Yeah, exactly. So there was just a like, relentless pursuit of trying to find whatever I could to try and get better. And there were a lot of things that popped up with some kind of scientific or clinical suggestion that they might be effective. There would always be some anecdotes on social media, and then there'd be sort of a decent amount of them that, considering how ill we were, it was well worth taking the risk to try it. So for me, I think the things that have worked the best is I take a daily aspirin, which I feel saves me from possible stroke and heart attack. I take formatidin, which I think really makes my evenings much more bearable. Both Emily and I suffer from allergy type stuff, so I'm quite a fan of the Fixo. But <laughs> apart from the culture scene and the Arabidine for my heart, I haven't really tried anything else. Emily, you're a big fan of Medicinals 9. You take it like a tequila shot. <laughs> I literally chug Medicinals 9 <laughs> every single day. The thing is, I cannot categorically tell you that Medicinals 9 has aided my recovery or made me feel better. I just know that feeling better has coincided with when I started to take Medicinals 9. And for me, the kind of Ayurvedic approach and potential gut healing and, and things like that that might stem from it, it, it fits with my my mindset and the way I view that yeah, with the way I view view the illness. So Medicinals 9 for me has been great. I've not tried that. I'm at my lowest point at the moment, so I might e actually try my case of Medicinals 9. It's not too vile, and I don't think I've had any bad side effects. But yeah, we have spoken to all of these people and had the scientific breakdown on the NATO and on the... I did, I did try statins for two weeks, actually, and I've been on the antihistamines and... and taken every single vitamin supplement or those kind of nutritional supplements that we've been recommended to no effect to none of them to any effect so I think the only thing that has made a difference to me is the medicinals nine HRT and my yoga and mindfulness and being the queen of zen <laughs> okay Harry spill what, what's helped you 
I've always tried to be quite measured in my response to this question because it is really easy for you to suddenly start getting better just randomly and then you assigning it to the current thing that you're taking at the time. The one thing that I do know helps in a very short period of time because I was part of a study. So I did a cognitive dysfunction test before and after was hyperbaric oxygen therapy. And I did it for 10 sessions. I did a test before and a test afterwards. And it was it was night and day difference. It was actually really crazy to see the results. And that was the, the in terms of your cognitive function, which is one of your primary symptoms. Yeah. Was it long lasting? Well, having got those results back, I then did a month's worth of hyperbaric oxygen therapy. And I'm pretty sure I got worse during that following month. So it's really tough to to tell. We, Emily and I have always said on the show that people need to be careful because there's a lot of snake oil salesmen out there. Yeah. And we're a pretty vulnerable group. And, you know, some of us have the resources and the ability to rationally think through what we can and cannot try. But some people obviously are spending their life savings trying things that are not proven or that may be dangerous or that may not help. People just need to, you know. Be mindful of that when we're having these Just be mindful, yeah. You asked before I came on for a list of things that I'd tried. And I have tried all this stuff, but I'm not taking any of that now. What am I trying now? I mean, I'm trying natokinase. I guess that's the the latest trend right now um, is to give that a shot. Natokinase everywhere at the moment. For how long have you been on it, Harry? Uh, I've been taking it for a couple of weeks now. And? No massive shifts. But I'm not getting worse either. So that's a nice bonus. And that is one thing, isn't it, with the natto that can cause some horrible side effects initially that you then have to sort of push through. Yeah, I feel like that sometimes happens with a lot of other things that people try as well. So Yeah, so for me, the natto is is buying into the idea that my symptoms are caused by sticky blood, right? Because it's an anticoagulant. Noreen, have you had the microclots test? I have they looked anti? Okay. Well, I've, I've had mine tested twice now, and both times have shown microclotting and uh, platelet hyperactivity. Any difference between the two times? And what, at what stages did you have them done? Um, well, I actually had them done before and after apheresis, which was really interesting. Um, so I could actually see that um, I had clots before I did apheresis, and then I didn't have clots after. Um, but what was interesting was that didn't change my symptoms a huge amount. You should maybe have it done now. We'll see if they've come back. I mean, I'd love to. I feel like this is a test that we should be getting every week to see if it correlates with our symptoms. I think anything that shows, anything that can measure these conditions is invaluable. I think that's like the biggest issue with long COVID is we just don't have a a good way of measuring it. I think a a diagnostic test is going to unlock, you know, the recognition we need, the ability to, to manage these conditions so much. That's true to a degree, apart from... As we've already mentioned, the relapsing and remitting nature of it and the fact that it's not at all linear, it does just slightly concern me that you have this one test for whatever biomarker you choose, microclots. You don't have them that week. And perhaps that correlates with you not having symptoms that week. I I guess that's my concern is the, the, the fluctuation in it. What happens then to our biomarkers or our blood markers? I mean, anything that's single, single time point, uh, tests are so limited in these like dynamic fluctuating conditions that really is where the idea of something like visible continuous longitudinal data capture and the ability for 
patience to assess themselves at their own relevant time points. Exactly. It really could play a big role in people's management and and potentially recovery. I mean, I think the most exciting thing for me about this app is the fact that down the line, you can opt into sharing your data with research teams and doctors in order to generate more knowledge about the illness. Yeah, and aid research. And I think that's something that uh, us as a community all seem to have quite a strong incentive to do, get our data, get our experience logged to help with what is being developed and to help with the treatment strategies and things that are coming through. For me, I'm the world's worst person at tracking my symptoms or remembering to take my medicines. So I almost have the memory of a goldfish when it comes to thinking that I've been fine for ages. And then you point out to me, yeah, but last week you were feeling crap. But I kind of block those things out of my mind. So I think for me, something like this that is actually tracking my symptoms more than just me writing them in my diary when I remember. It could be very useful in terms of illness management. No, for sure. And you know, I've been wearing a wearable watch, Apple watch for the entire time, actually before I got ill. So I was able to see very clearly from my watch when I got ill and my subsequent heart fitness just drop off a cliff, which has not recovered since. But this app should be able to help me interpret all the data that I see anyway. Yeah. Which is great because we are not doctors and we are not able to kind of look at things as a big picture unless we see a graph in front of us, really. Mm, The idea of seeing graphs of my illness is quite exciting to me. You know, I love that kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) I'd rather not, to be honest. (laughs) Harry's amazing. He's done a lot of work. His whole team have all the shared knowledge because some of them have got long COVID, some of them have got ME-CFS. Yeah, pooling that together is is really remarkable, isn't it? So do you have a look, search visible on your app store? Visible, long COVID and ME-CFS. You can download that app. Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe.